I'll begin with some verses from Romans 8, the very beginning of that chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. then a couple of questions from the shorter catechism. How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. It's at this point in the lectures that I have the distinct feeling that uh, I'm winging it. Um, <laughs> history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is well treated through the 30s. We're getting better at it through the 40s. But once you get through the 40s, things start getting uh, a little difficult, a little hazy, and uh, there isn't a lot of good reflective material on uh, the time since uh, the beginning of the 50s. So <clears throat> I'm launching out here, and I hope you'll be patient with me as I try to work my way so through some of this material. I've uh, entitled this lecture uh, spirit and commandment. And we will, continue, we will consider both of those uh, items in turn, spirit and uh, commandment. The 1940s witnessed in the OPC the rise of a rationalist threat through the incomprehensibility debate that took place at that time. And our church witnessed something of the strength of those enlightenment features of which we spoke that had become a part of the American Presbyterian expression. 
However, the OPC would not be immune to the threat coming from the other side. I think very nicely Mr. Peterson has spoken about the rationalist impulse and also the romantic impulse. The OPC would not be immune to the threat coming from the other side, from the so-called romantic side, or maybe better, the subjectivist side of things. Now I want you to note something of the complexity of this problem, and that's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to launch into this matter. The church has known both threats, and I think that has been well laid out for you in the evening. The church has known both threats. However, both threats have arisen within single movements and within solitary individuals. One individual expressing both sides simultaneously. Hmm, here comes a pretzel. <laughs> One of those conundrums. <laughs> now let's review a little bit of American Presbyterian history. You have in the 18th century what was called the New Side, Old Side split. Now that split took place in 1741 was not repaired until 1758. In the next century, you have what was called the New School, Old School split. That split took place in 1837 and was not healed until 1870. Now think about what was going on in these various splits. On the one hand, the new side and the new school proved very positive about the intellectual life. In fact, it could be said that there was even a rationalist strain running through them. They even considered themselves to be intellectually progressive. They were with it. They were relevant, and they were relevant in an intellectual way. So in these movements, New Side and in the movement of the New School, we can discern a rationalist sign. The tenets, for instance, were, in some respects, intellectuals. William Tennant was responsible for the Log College, and that Log College has been looked upon as the spiritual predecessor to Princeton University. 
In the next century, the 19th century, the new school men were greatly influenced by New England theology. The great intellectuals of New England had a deep, deep impact upon the new school men. So you have that side of these movements. On the other hand, both of these movements expressed and at times expressed extremely the romantic, subjectivist, emotional, experiential side of things. In fact, you find them insisting upon this dimension of reality. Now, we need not review the evidences of this and sympathies for it among the 18th century New Siders with their sympathies, at least among some of them, for some of the extremes of the Great Awakening. You remember how Edwards finally had to distance himself from some of those extremes. But think of the 19th century as well. My intent is not to review with you a lot of the particularities of the extremes that arose within the New Schoolers and their approach to things, but you might recall some of their sympathies for what were called the New Measures as they were developed by Charles Finney. The extremes that developed in upstate New York, for instance, and what became known as the Burnt Over District. The fact that these two approaches can and do appear in the same movement and even in a solitary individual introduces us to what could be considered the reactionary side of the entire phenomenon. Now hang with me here. What I mean is this. You have the intellectual side of the equation. You have that as a given. The Presbyterian tradition has always prided itself in its intellectual side. God is interested in the mind. We are engaged with the Lord mentally. We are active and energetic when it comes to our mental abilities. We are not mentally indolent. So you have that as the given now. But this being the given, there then is interjected a reaction to a perceived deficiency within. And uh, this reaction works itself out by merely adding what it thinks it lacks. So you have the intellectual side 
and you then add to that fine intellectual tradition an adequate expression of emotionalism and subjectivism and experientialism. Let me get real concrete here. I think that I have known, and I think that maybe you have known, men who have ended up embarrassed about their personality. They're quite intelligent, but they're not very socially adept. They're awkward in certain settings. Now, in a religious context, what I've observed is this. These individuals who are embarrassed about their personalities then react to themselves. And in an effort to overcome their inherent restraints of personality, they become advocates of the extremes in the opposite. Not that they're very natural at it. They're sort of awkward in their (laughs) hand-waving. They sort of stumble a little bit. But on this practical level, do you see the point? The personality, somewhat intellectual, somewhat socially awkward, reacting to itself and thus trying to compensate by making room for the extremes in the opposite. Well, that phenomenon that you see in an individual is also observed in the church. Now, I want to try to spell out for you something of what this tendency means. What you have in the end is a view of Christianity that turns it, let's put that, a, a view of Christianity and spirituality that turns them into simple addition problems. Well, I've got the good intellect. All I need is the good emotional response, the good heart, in order to make the system complete. One plus one equals the whole. I've got the whole picture now. Just add the good head to the good heart. That gives you the whole picture, the complete system. Now, there are many, many dangers to this sort of thinking. It's the dangers of this sort of thinking that have led us into the practical theology wilderness of our day. 
you see, we are told the complete picture is good systematics plus what systematics can't supply, good practical theology, and you have the complete system. The tragedy is that many of the promoters of the practical theology ascendancy have suggested to us that while life won't be found in systematics, it most definitely will be found in practical theology, so get yourself into practical theology in order to find life. That will supply what you like. That, that will supply what you lack. That will give you what you need. Well, let me, let me spell this out a little bit better. You've got the Bible. You've got your systematics. Pretend this is practical theology. Now, by admission, systematics is an abstraction. Systematics is not life. It's a summary of this. Life is found here. What does practical theology do? It comes along, removed from systematics, another step removed from the Scripture, but it claims it has life. Now you're two steps removed, see? Life's over here. <laughs> and we're told it's a simple addition problem. This plus this gives you the whole. Somehow, I'm missing this. Life is not in the system. Life is here, okay? Whether it's systematics, whether it's our confession, we don't say that life is found here, we say life is found here. And life certainly isn't found here. Okay, now I want you to think about the dangers <clears throat> and the sort of thinking that we've described turns Christianity and spirituality into, into a mere addition problem. First of all, this approach expresses a commitment to a blockhouse anthropology. Anthropology, doctrine of man, blockhouse anthropology, and sees man not as the integral whole, integral whole the image of God, but as a composite of various elements added together, stuck together. That's one of the dangers. There is another danger. This approach looks upon the emotional, experiential side as an addition needed either to authenticate genuine conversion or to render ordinary Christians extraordinary and complete. Often the approach is to make, often the approach is made to the church in terms of what she does not have but must get through some further work of God's Spirit. And I don't hesitate to say this, 
such a position in the end proves to be cultic, divisive, and separatist. Now, are you with me so far? You've got to get something more, see? Isn't it interesting that we've been looking at Colossians in the evening? If you have Christ, you have all you need. But there comes those into the church who tell you you've got to get something more. A further work of grace, a certain addition, something more added to you. All of this is beginning to sound quite familiar to you, I'm sure. And that presents you with the third danger. Given the environment in which we live, the environment that has been inundated by the enthusiast and holiness doctrine and uh, the charismatic movement of our time. This a network that wreaks havoc upon proper, true, biblical doctrines of covenant baptism and Christian life. The upheavals in the OPC with the fundamentalists in the late 30s and with the evangelicals in the 40s are reflective of the past upheavals in American Presbyterianism in which we witness the convergence of and the conflict over enlightenment and romantic convictions playing themselves out simultaneously. Predictably, there are those expressions among some who remain in the church that will tend to move in a more extreme direction as we get beyond the 40s and into the 50s. And it's these that I want to speak about now. First of all, the penile movement. Spell penile. <laughs> yeah, you got it on the... Oh, good. <laughs> Is it spelled right? Okay. All right. <laughs> penile. What? What is penile? What is penile? What's, what's it bring to mind? Means face of God? Okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 32, verse 30. Uh, Jacob's wrestled with the angel and... Uh, the place is called Peniel, all right? Face of God. Did you know that there was a Peniel movement in this century and that that movement had uh, rather remarkable impact upon the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Now, I don't know much about the origins of the movement. I can only give you certain features. From my reading, it seems that there was a Bible conference at Lake Luzerne in New York that was organized in 1933. It produced literature, it organized chapters and Bible studies and had a great impact. 
It was heavily influenced by some women. It had some female leadership. A woman by the name of Jessie Penn Lewis, that's a hyphenated last name, uh, was instrumental in this movement. Okay. This movement had deep impact upon individuals and congregations within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and uh, touched down in upstate New York, <laughs> interestingly. It touched down in upstate New York in the 40s, especially in the congregations in Schenectady and Albany. The latter congregation in Albany was broken over the controversy. The struggle revolved around the pastor, Herman Peterson, 1948-1949. And the congregation continued after he left. He had, first of all, been influenced by Penile, but then rejected it congregation continued after his departure until 1962. It never recovered from the controversy. All right, that's the first chapter. The second chapter takes place in and around Philadelphia. And here it touches the church most decisively. In 1954, the small congregation Redeemer Church of Manoa, it had just moved to Manoa, called G. Travers Sloyer, S-L-O-Y-E-R, as pastor. Now, Mr. Sloyer was a penilist, and in time trouble erupted within that little congregation. And in 1957, some in the church brought matters to the attention of the presbytery. The presbytery then acted to dissolve the pastoral relationship. The majority of the congregation withdrew from the OPC. A remnant for the OPC continued until May of 63 when they disbanded. Mr. Sloyer left the OPC in 1959 and joined the RCA. Well, <clears throat> that's some of the detail. What did the Penile movement teach? There's a controversy as to just what the particular features of the penile movement were, but as one past disciple described it, penile holds to an immediate inward witness of the Holy Spirit as the final test in all matters. That's a quote. Penile holds to the inward immediate witness of the Holy Spirit as the final test in all matters. Well, I think you the problem if, in fact, that's a correct assessment of the penile uh, teaching. The Presbytery of Philadelphia, when it dealt with the matter, saw penile as a distinct system or pattern of sanctification and guidance. 
which it then found at variance with the scripture and our standards. Our re I will read from their statement. The presbytery takes note of a procedure containing such elements as the following, quote, knowing the old man, unquote, which often requires confession of private sin to others, quote, meeting the cross, or, quote, choosing death to the old man, unquote, and knowing the, quote, full victory of the cross, quote, resisting, unquote, quote, binding, unquote, the defeating of Satan, as after the example of Christ to drive Satan out and to prepare the way for the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to, quote, take his rightful place, unquote, seeking the, quote, witness of the Holy Spirit, unquote, in the choice of specific alternatives, both small and large, including particular life partners, receiving the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit in these matters, and recognizing those who follow this pattern as having attained an advanced spiritual status distinct from other Christians who are still carnal and to whom, therefore, this approach should not be communicated until they are ready for it. And the Presbytery concludes that these features constitute a system or pattern of sanctification and guidance which is contrary to the Bible and our standards at various respects, including the following. It obscures the decisive significance at conversion of our union with Christ in the virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection in that we are, we, before we can be partakers of the victory secured by Christ in the cross, it calls for additional steps on our part. It errs in its assumption that aspects of an indwelling sin may be put to death by a specific procedure not set forth in the scriptures. It is characterized by false mysticism in its emphasis both in resisting Satan by way of personal encounter and in receiving the immediate witness of the Spirit. It denies in practice the authority and sufficiency of scripture as our, own infallible, our only infallible rule of faith and life, and it disrupts the unity of the body of Christ. Well, <laughs> that's quite an indictment, isn't it? The penile question, however, was not finished uh, by the completion of things there in the late 50s. There was a man who was influenced during his student days at Westminster by the penile movement. His name was Arnold Krebs. So a further chapter is written in the penile story as we move on to consider what happened to Arnold Krebs. Arnold was a very, very winsome individual, very popular pastor in Nashville, Pennsylvania from 1960 to 1966. He was very capable, very able man. He proved to be a very 
successful missionary on the mission field in Japan. Began his service in 1966, and uh, it continued uh, through the time of his trial. In the mid-70s, he came under a cloud because of his views of the charismatic gifts. He tried to make a distinction between the gifts and uh, revelation, between what we have come to understand as the charismatic endowments, as those endowments are associated with the charismatic movement and revelation itself. A distinction which the General Assembly, after a lengthy debate, I believe it took up parts of three days, a distinction which the General Assembly in 1936 did not find convincing. What did I say? 1976? 36, I'm sorry. I just can't get out of the... In 1976... Yes, it did not find convincing. The uh, assembly at uh, uh, its meeting denied his appeals of the decisions that had been made in the Presbytery of Ohio with respect to his case. In the aftermath, the Presbytery made repeated trips to visit with Arnold in order to woo him back I remember Lawrence Ayers going personally to New Jersey to spend days with Arnold in order to speak intimately with him, to woo him back, but those efforts were unsuccessful, and uh, Arnold left the church in 1978 and uh, eventually joined the Christian Reformed Church and went out as a missionary of the Christian Reformed Church to Japan. I think that we can see quite easily in these instances how the subjective experiential side is gaining the upper hand with certain individuals with certain movements. There are dimensions of the Christian life that are treated as additions that afford greater insight or deeper meaning to the Christian walk. Cultivations of these additions seem to end in controversy. There seem to be certain cultic features to these aspects and approaches, and there seems to be a divisiveness that is attached to their cultivation. Now, I am hesitant to move on to the next point. I've listed it as the New Life Movement, and I know that this is a very sensitive issue, and... Uh, one that uh, we're still too quite, we're still too close to, to make uh, our best judgments. At this point, I think I'll just try to give you some of my impressions of the movement. <clears throat> I know Jack Miller, and I did know him and worked closely with him in my seminary years. I'll be very forthright about it, and I'm sure he would be too. We did have a falling out. And that falling out, I think, occurred over the issues that we are dealing with here this morning. 
I will say <clears throat> that uh, Jack always treated me with respect, and at a time when I was especially low spiritually, he did uh, befriend me, and I always will think highly of him for that. However, seminary life was not only traumatic for me, it was traumatic for Jack. I think that if some of you know his story, you can recount the details of that as well as I. But uh, finally, at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, things came to a crisis point for Jack. He was, in effect, looking for himself trying to figure out how he might minister best, whether he should stay at the seminary, for instance, whether he should break away from it. It was in that circumstance that uh, he had an experience, and that experience, he claims, he says, changed him. Out of that change, out of that experience, came the New Life Movement. The thesis is simple. From an experience such as he had, a crisis experience to be sure, something after the fashion that he experienced in those days, there is a basis for a growing bold, that was one of his favorite words, bold, productive life in Christ. Now, we can't be against growing in Christ. We can't be against boldness for the sake of our Savior. We can't be against productivity in our walk with Christ. But there was, at the same time, a heavy emphasis upon the subjective side of things, the experiential side of things. In fact, in reading Jack, in talking with Jack, one got the impression that the experience at the beginning of the 70s could very easily give way to another experience in which you would meet God again, in which the new life would become newer, and then newer again. Some of you may have read his account of his heart attack. I think it took place in Uganda, if I'm not mistaken, and he wrote it up, and it was as if the early part of the 70s were recurring for him once more. There was one more new life experience, so you move from these experiences, and then you judge all former assessments of faith in light of the latest experience. Well, that's one side of the problem of new life. The other side is this. You see, Jack was a Christian when he had his experience and when he had subsequent experiences. Now, I think that you can see how that began to register on folks in Philadelphia as the New Life Church began to take shape in Jenkintown. Here were lifelong Christians 
here were elders in OP congregations who were resonating to what Jack said, who were finding new life, who were jettisoning their former life for the new life that they found. Division came. Sessions lost members. Congregations lost members as Christians, Orthodox Presbyterians, found new life. Obviously, what they had experienced had not been adequate formally. They were in need of what could be supplied under the new life heading. Well, with this emphasis on the subjective and the emotional side of things, it is not strange then that distinct forms of Christian life and distinct forms of Christian worship began to develop were attached to the new life experience, the new life movement. It seems to me that the new life movement in many respects cannot abstract itself from the problems that we have charted, analyzed, reviewed in the course of American Presbyterian history. New life is not a new problem. The new life movement is not a new movement. It's an old movement with a long history. So I don't want you to be intimidated by those who may suggest that they have something that you don't have. You have Christ. Live in him. Live in him to the full. Glory in him. Your problem is not getting something you lack. Your problem may be not living to the full in what you have. But please don't be intimidated. The New Life Movement, I believe, will prove itself to be cultic, separatist, with its own unique substructure. It develops an independent mission effort, its own program of ecumenicity, independent of its denomination, and its own distinct message. Now, it's a sad conclusion, and it gives me no joy to say these things, because I have many friends in the movement, many I love, and I still love Jack Miller. So, <clears throat> the OPC has consistently rejected or resisted the problem, the rationalist, romanticist dualism, and we've had a nice presentation of, uh, of that problem in the evening. That doesn't mean that she's always grasped, grasped well the issues at stake. 
been as clear as she might be about the way, the direction she should move. Still, the broader and more biblical commitment prevails within her by the grace of God, and we thank God for that. And that commitment finds the OPC devoted in her treatment of the church, that the church should be treated as the church, devoted in her commitment to take confessions of faith at face value, to honor the covenant, to tell us once more that our baptism has significance. Our baptism has significance. I could go on at this point because at base, you see, we are called to preach a message that has as its center the story and the experience of Jesus Christ. My story saves no one. I can tell you my story and that doesn't save you. The story of Jesus Christ is what saves you. And you are to be brought into contact with it by faith. With regard to the matter of my having been raised a Christian, never knowing a time when I didn't believe in Jesus and didn't love him as my Savior. With regard to that, let me point out to you the dynamics of the covenant. It's not as if I don't know the depths of sin. It's not as if I don't know the depths of depravity. I am fully aware of that sin and of that depravity. But I don't measure that sin and depravity by my personal experience of it. I measure my sin and Bible's description of it and by my union with Adam. Nothing less then the sin of the whole world is my sin, and I have been delivered from that through the cross of Jesus Christ. So whether or not I can point to an experience when I was 14 years of age or 23 or whenever, that's not the issue. Many of you can't. But that doesn't mean you are a stranger to depravity and to sin because you are one with Adam and by the grace of God you have been delivered through the transition that has affected the ages of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have to stop here. I was to go on and speak to you about uh, commandment And the charge that, of course, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is the Orthodox Pharisaical Church. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stop here and uh, we'll leave those matters for other people and other times. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for what we have in your Son.
We glory in Him. We rejoice that He died for us and was raised again for our justification. We thank You, our Father, that even now, in our experience, in our subjectivity, we are being conformed to Him and in that we delight. O Lord, encourage us in our faith and steal us against those intimidations that would come to us and rob us of that prize that has been given us in Him. We ask it in His name. Amen.